was um, playing electric bass and garage bands and stuff. I like my doorway to music was rock radio, basically. You know, so I just was interested in that, and that's how I met Dave King. In fact, we're from the same suburb of Minneapolis called Golden Valley, and we went to the same junior high school, and we just met through music, playing in bands. And you know, then as I got towards the end of high school, I was gradually become exposed to to jazz and fusiony things like Alan Holdsworth or stuff like that. But then eventually it, that led to to Ornette Coleman and Keith Jarrett and John Coltrane and I had heard Charlie Hayden at that point and that that's really what sparked an interest in playing acoustic bass for me. That's bassist Reed Anderson, one third of the band plus the boundary-erasing jazz power trio, which also includes pianist Ethan Iverson and drummer Dave King. This is Jazz Stories from Jazz at Lincoln Center. I'm David Gorin. In April 2013, I spoke with Reed about The Bad Plus, a leaderless group known for their smart covers of pop and rock tunes, as well as daring original compositions. We're really leader personalities all of us have a, you know, a vision and a sense of that kind of personal responsibility. And we know that about each other and we trust each other and we've known each other a long time. So we don't really have to get into those discussions. It's, it's not about, oh, can you support me more melodically here or do this and that? It's, it's just um, when we're working out some music, of course, it's not like we never would say anything to each other, but for the most part, there doesn't have to be any discussion about that stuff. You know, I, I think that well, f- one of the things that we've really tried to do, and it's and it's been a battle, honestly, but we've tried to go out there and represent for group music, to be a band, to, to really be, you know, a committed band that has a sound, that has a, a personality that you can sink your teeth into. When you say the bad plus, it's the bad plus. It's not some guys that are interchangeable or something like that. Jazz has become, I guess maybe it's always been this very leader-centric world. It's really a world that it wants to say, it's this guy's band. Somebody gets to be the guy because a lot of times it's instrument-based, depending on the instrumentation. If there's a saxophone in the group, it ends up being the saxophone player's group, for example. If there's somebody who is actually the leader, who's actually the visionary, who's actually pulling things together great you know but i think a lot of the time it's a lot less clear than that you know in a lot of jazz for example you know what is it to be the leader of the band are you the guy that's like making the calls to get the gigs well i guess then you're the leader of the band but like when everybody's up there making the music and playing it gets pretty vague and i i think the end result of that is that you have this situation where a lot of music making that goes on, people aren't playing their music. For us in The Bad Plus, that's something we really believe in. When we're playing, we're playing our music. We're not up there, like, temporarily filling in, or even, like, you know, just maybe it's a working band or something like that, but it's still so-and-so's music. It's, I, I, there's a different energy to that, for sure. You know, even though there's a lot of great music made under those circumstances, I think the energy is always going to be slightly different. I think the three of us are in a situation that I can say that I believe that we're all 
strong individual voices that we we all have a voice as composers for example that if the bad plus didn't exist i think that there, it would still be distinctive among the three of us and we're able to come together and also somehow even though we have a lot of wide range of interests between the three of us we don't necessarily agree on everything in fact maybe we don't agree on much in a way but what we do agree on is this kind of core plane of existence that we can this playing field that we meet on that that is somehow this confluence of the avant-garde and pop sensibility and and jazz tradition and that sort of thing punk energy punk energy sure <laughs> throw that in there yeah of course there's so much in there i mean you can sort of reach in you, you'll hear like rhythm back beats but then you'll hear a lot of free improvisation but it's there's an anchor to it that's the thing i guess you get into sort of you know anarchy i guess the an anarchist would say well yeah well anarchy is it doesn't mean everything just falls apart it's just like everyone cooperates and gets things that need to get done get done i've always been interested in different systems of improvisation and um it sounds like you you were attracted to the ornette style and, and his is a very sort of friendly style in a way. Everyone can play together, everyone's listening to everyone. Are there other systems that you've learned or are interested in? Do you think of them as different systems? I don't really think in terms of systems. Um, it's more about what's the song, you know, and how do you sing that song and how do you, you know, what's the language of that song? How do you convey that in a personal way but, you know, I think everything we do in The Bad Plus, we think of as a song. We think of it in terms of, you know, things happen because they have a reason to happen. They're part of the structure. They're part of the composition and whatever that world is for each composition, for each song. How does that apply to when something that uh, people associate with The Bad Plus is, you know, the, the choice of covers and then hearing them in a whole different way? How did that come up? It just felt like something that, it's time had come. You know, I was a young, aspiring musician in high school, like interested in jazz, going out to jazz clubs, you know, trying to figure out how it works, how do people improvise on this music, all the stuff you're going through. You know, as I said, Dave and I are from the same town and we've been close friends since we were 15 years old. And I just remember so clearly the two of us sitting in my parents' family room fantasizing about having a band it would be a jazz group but we'd come out and play like something by the police or something like that and it was just something that we you know um i guess it's like we wanted to hear that we wanted to if we would have shown up at at the dakota in saint paul the great jazz club uh there if we would have shown up and and some band did that it would have blown our minds and it's something that we sort of carried with us and uh, when we started the Bad Plus, partly also just in the interest of having some repertoire for our first gigs too, we just said, "Hey, well, let's let's learn this ABBA song and this and Nirvana, you know, and let's just see what we can do with them." And in doing so, I think that was one of the things also that it helped us discover our sound as well. You know, it was this great thing about doing those those songs for us was that there's no roadmap for them. You have to figure it out on your own. There's no, you can't refer to Sonny Rollins version of, of uh, knowing me, knowing you. It's just, you got to face it down and, 
you know, kind of find out who you are in that context. And, and the other nice thing about those songs is that it allows us to really explore the avant-garde and the audience will kind of just go with it because they're so familiar with the hook that it's, you know, they're not thrown. So in a, in a sense, like some of the most avant-garde music we've done has been the covers, I think. It's a kind of like a sleight of hand because you think you're hearing this cover, but if you actually listen to, I don't know, Chariots of Fire, it's pretty, I mean, it's out there. It's really avant-garde music. I mean, in a sense, it's it's become a little bit of a burden for us because people talk about the covers all the time. And what we're really about is composition, and we always have been. These days, we hardly ever play any so-called cover songs anymore. And, you know, I don't think any in the end anyone really cares. Like, some people might at some point have been like, oh, yeah, I heard these guys did Smells Like Teen Spirit. I wanted to do that. And it, every once in a while, maybe for an encore, we'll We'll play it and it's it's fun you know it smells like teen spirit and in, in particular it's kind of it's like a modal jazz tune basically you know so that's one of the funniest things to me and it says so much about you know people's attitudes in jazz towards rock music i personally don't see a lot of how much you can really make a musical distinction over about the fundamental materials of smells like teen spirit versus like I love Supreme, you know, so I'm sorry, but there's nothing more sophisticated about, you know, the score to a love Supreme versus the score to smells like teen spirit. It's just like, it's just that one was a massively popular piece of rock music. And one was, is a, you know, incredibly, well, I love Supreme was not unpopular, but you know, it's coming from a, just a different aesthetic place. You guys all played together one time, like in 1989. And how did that happen? Did it relate to what happened later? Or was it just... Yeah, well, Dave and I were were good friends. And then I went off to university for... I was in, a, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin for a year. Ethan is from a town called Menominee, which is quite close to there. And we were introduced by... Ron Kieser, who's the father of Jeff Kieser, but uh, Ron taught percussion at the university. So he introduced me and Ethan and we hit it off right away and we started playing together a lot. And, you know, it was just one of those things where I went home and Ethan came with me to hang out and visit. And we called up Dave and got together in my parents' house and just, you know, played. We were just young obnoxious and inexperienced ambitious you know musicians and uh i th you know certainly wasn't a moment where we thought wow this is really something it was more a moment where we thought god i doubt that this will ever happen again but you know 10 years of each of us going our own ways and 
kind of finding ourselves and being interested in and in, in involved in each other's projects over the years and just made sense after a while at, at a certain point we thought well gosh what would happen if we played together so that's that's pretty much it we we just got together we played a couple concerts in in St. Paul and made a record one afternoon and the rest is history you got a, you know a lot of buzz about the band in the early years I like in your press kit that you the bad reviews are included along with the good reviews once you were playing a lot of gigs, were you conscious that you were like kind of creating a ruckus, both being so accessible in a way, but also just so out there? Yeah, well, once we signed with Columbia, that was, of course, um, a lot of things started to happen. But, you know, it, it, it was a couple of years that the band was together. And I, I think one thing that is an important part of the story and that, that we're certainly proud of is that we committed to doing this you know in the early days we you know there was a sense then as there is now i'm sure people talk about gosh you know what this music needs is some bands if we could just get together and commit and we'll like make this happen and we'll do it together and and so we said yeah all right well let's let's see what happens when we do this so we would play every maybe three months or so and but to play meant that we would have to buy a plane ticket or two plane tickets, depending on, you know, because we've never lived in the same city. Dave lived in Minneapolis and Ethan and I live here. So so if we're playing in New York, we have to buy a plane ticket for Dave. We have to, we would play usually in the old office at the knitting factory, which involved moving a piano, which was another expense, and then maybe take out an ad in the Village Voice or something. So basically playing meant we would, spend our money to do it but we felt that it was worthwhile to the point where if someone got called and and we certainly did get called I remember getting called to do a European tour but I had a bad plus show scheduled and I turned it down because I, I just felt that if we're not going to be able to commit on this level at least give it a shot then then every time something's always going to come up you know so we managed to do that. We managed to have at least that level of commitment. And I do remember, this is in the earliest days, but we, we, we had three nights at the, in the old office at the Knitting Factory. And the first set, there were six people there. And the third night was totally sold out. So, you know, we believed that we had something even the first night, but it started to become tangible that we had something that was engaging, that was interesting, that was powerful. You know, that it, it had the qualities that we th that we felt that it did. It doesn't happen so often, but that I, I it happened it happened that weekend where people were like, you, you know, you have to check this out. Bassist Reed Anderson. Check out his music at thebadplus.com. To hear more jazz stories, go to jalc.org, where you can also find information on tours by the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra and upcoming events at Rose Hall, the House of Swing. You can also subscribe to Jazz Stories on iTunes. Jazz Stories is produced by Alexa Lim, Stephen Rath, and me, David Gorin. 
We invite you to support Jazz at Lincoln Center by coming to the House of Swing in New York City or at the new Dizzy's Club next time you're in Dubai. For Jazz Stories, I'm David Gorham.